Hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. Please be seated. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for being here. We pray by your Holy Spirit that you will help us as we interact with your word today. Lord, we ask for uh, big changes or little changes, something that, that you do in our lives that, that uh, shows that we've been with you in your word. Help us now, in Jesus' name, amen. So this is a continuation of the theme we've been on for the last three weeks since the start of the year. I guess if you titled it as a sermon series, it would be God is still on the throne. And we've got to remember that. We need that so badly as we uh, try to even in our brains counteract what is happening and and the things that that people use to try to scare us. Uh, We are remembering that God is still on the throne. So we've got basically four more weeks in this. Three will be Old Testament narratives. You'll notice when I pray, I try and group our prayers around three areas and asking God for help. Uh, There's the the financial issues that that people face. There are the physical issues that people face. And then there's the relationship, interpersonal issues that people face. And so three Old Testament stories. It will be the, the oil that never ran out for the financial the Hezekiah and, and God extending his life by that time. And uh, I didn't write down what the last one was. It's all, it's mapped out, but the uh, spiritual emotional provision. Oh, it's Elijah under the juniper tree and God's providing for him uh, when he just wanted to die. And then we will wrap that up with a, a psalm uh, uh, on this order. And then we are finished with this series In the month of March, we'll have a series called Christ the Shepherd. It'll be from John chapter 10, and it'll be talking about I'm the good shepherd. The shepherd gives his life for the sheep. We did this a few years ago, but uh, I'm still here, (laughs) so a couple of us. So, But you guys have changed. It's it's time to to revisit that as we think about uh, that John 10 shepherding passage. So that'll be March. Then in April, it'll be uh, along the lines of Easter, and then we'll go from there. So that's where we're headed. So this sermon fits into God being our sovereign, our Savior, God being in charge, and the helplessness that we tend to feel, but God being on the throne. In this particular passage, it's interesting because this is the king praying. You ever heard the phrase, What's good for the goose is good for the gander. You ever use that phrase? Heard it, used it? Uh, used to be, if you watch old English uh, shows or read literature, it used to say, 
uh, what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. And then it evolved into that, like, if you're going to cook the goose in this sauce, uh, well, the gander can get cooked in that sauce too, which that doesn't sound as good, but uh, sometimes a, a, a person will say, hey, if you get to do it, I get to do it. What's good for you is good for me. What's good for the goose is good for the gander, they used to say. Um, in this case, the goose would be the king, King David. And we can learn a lot from King David's prayer and say this applies to us in so many ways. If this applies to the king, then it applies to us. Uh, something similar, Jesus was talking about the, uh, in the New Testament when he was talking about if they did this to the master of the house, how will they treat the servants? Uh, similar type of a thought. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. What's good for King David, as he looked at life and his relationship with God, applies to each one of us as God's person as well. So uh, there's just uh, five little points this morning, things that we need. Uh, King David being the writer of this psalm, but it's breathed out by God. It's included in Scripture for a reason, for us. I imagine King David had a lot of songs and things that he sang to God that were perfectly wonderful that did not make the cut into into Scripture. He was a writer of of things. He put things into music. He was the sweet singer of Israel. But boy, these that made it into Scripture, uh, that's God's word. That's God breathing this out. So we're looking at this from the perspective of King David writing it, but we're looking at it the perspective of God causing David to write it. God essentially writing it himself for our sake. It's important. So we need this. So here we go. First of all, we see in this passage that even the king has trouble. He's saying in verse 1, Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. The situation isn't explicitly clear. Like some of the Psalms will tell us, this is when this happened. This is when David was in uh, the camp of the Philistines and he pretended to be crazy. Or this, this was David when he did this. This one does not say the situation. It just tells us that David wrote this. Uh, but almost universally, people will say, this is most likely when David was fleeing uh, when his son Absalom rebelled against him. Part of it is the placement in the Psalms, and we won't go into that, but even within the Psalm, as John Calvin was uh, writing about it. Calvin said, I agree with everybody else, and this is Calvin all this hundreds of years ago, and people are still saying this. He said uh, two reasons. One is uh, when he's saying, from the end of the earth I call you, uh, a location. This isn't just a symbolic, you know, I'm at my wit's end, I'm off in another planet inside my head or whatever. This is a geographical place. He's, not, he's a king not in his kingdom. He's a king not in his kingdom in trouble. And he's already been ordained as the king. Uh, and you can look at the end of it where he says, prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. So what we know of David and David's story and, and his kingship Uh, this would be the most likely scenario. David was in trouble. He'd been the king for a long time. His own 
son rose up against him, would sit outside the gate and and, uh, tell people, if I was the king, you'd get a fair hearing. My dad's no good. Essentially, he rejected his father's faith. He rejected everything that David had to say and, and tried to hand down. And it was a hard time, if that's what it was. At any rate, we know that God's anointed king is in trouble. But you say, that's not possible. Isn't it work like this? Your life is a mess. You may be addicted to something. You may uh, be uh, on the ropes in life. You may be uh, sinking fast. And God saves you and pulls you out of that. And God forgives your sin, yes. But doesn't God then clean everything up so that you have no problems ever, ever again? We talk about a a whole series of thought that's on the fringe of Christianity. Uh, Some of them not even biblical at all. You can't even say Christians. Some of them are Christians, but they're falling for this. The whole idea of of, uh, name it and claim it. The whole idea of, if you're a Christian, God's going to give you your very best life right now. Why wait till heaven? You get everything good now. You just sign up and become a Christian, and your worries are, are gone. And if they're not gone, then that just means there's something wrong with you. But we look at Scripture and we see God's anointed. We see the man after God's own heart. We see King David saying, Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. God's anointed can be in trouble. You as a Christian can say, I'm trying to do What's right? I'm trying to live for God. (laughs) My experience, and maybe for a lot of us, is it's almost like when we really make that, that's when trouble comes. Does it seem like that? I can say just having been in this church, in this pulpit, as, as the pastor here for 16 years now, it seems like, uh, In my own personal life, there's been no problems. And in the church's life, there's been no problems until things start to get spiritual and good. Things start to go good. And then all of a sudden, that's when the troubles come and the tests and challenges come. Uh, There's theories and there's reasons why for that. And maybe we'll get into those sometimes. My point this morning is simply this. If God's king, God's anointed king, who wrote wonderful praise to God, who wanted to do what was right most of the time and yet fell into his sin, but but was God's person. If that king can have trouble, well, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And don't be surprised and don't think God's uh, ignoring you and don't think you can't call out to God the same way David did when trouble hits. In this world, Scripture says, you will have trouble. But fear not, Jesus talking. I have overcome the world. So we're not saying misery loves company, but it kind of feels 
a little good. Sorry, David, it kind of helps me that you had trouble too, is what I would say to him with a smile on my face. I wish he didn't, but that helps me in some way. In this case, if this was what a lot of people think, if this was the situation with Absalom, this was one that was not his own doing. This was an outside source. We know David had some trouble when he lusted after Bathsheba, when he did all of those things and had her husband Uriah killed. We know that there's consequences for our sin. But in this particular case, uh, as what much as we understand it, this is an outside force. This is just someone that rose up against him. It was Absalom. It wasn't David's own doing. It was Absalom's doing. What about those people whose kids have rejected the faith and have then even turned on their parents? They all go to read Psalms for comfort. <laughs> and they read this one, maybe. They go, man, he was in the same boat I was. We see that this happens to all, even the kings of God's people. You're human, you're not exempt from a day of trouble where you cry out and you say, hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. The second thing that we have in common is that even kings cannot get themselves out of trouble. If anyone was in trouble in that period of time and had every human resource or or the best human resources to get himself out of trouble, it would have been King David. The common person wouldn't have had the financial resources, wouldn't have had the political clout, wouldn't have had the associations, wouldn't have had people working for him to to find out and get the resources. But even the king got into trouble, and even the king had no way out of that trouble at that time. Look at verses 2 and 3. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. The king is asking for God to lead him to a rock that is higher. He would be the highest rock. If you were in trouble in Israel, you would say, I have this connection. Way back when, I've got a connection. My aunt you know, baked a pie for the King David, and he loved it. And maybe I can trade in on that somehow. Maybe I can use my contacts, and I can get to the king, and I can get the king to notice me. Oh, king, you are the rock that will help me in my trouble. What does the king do when the king has no resource? This trouble didn't have a human solution that David could solve. Resources are not enough sometimes. This is usually where I pull out, and she just died. What was her name? Joan Didion. This is usually where I pull out her her book, and I read that passage when she wrote a a famous book called The Year of Living, uh, not dangerously, that was a movie. Uh, She wrote a book about when her husband died and her daughter died, and she talked about being at the end of her resources, and she talked about all of her contacts that she had, her little Rolodex back in that day. And she said, I could call nobody on here. It's nice to have all these people, but there's times where there's nothing you can do. 
Year of Magical Thinking. That's the book. Um, sometimes in the movies you can see a person falling off a cliff. And if they really want to make it, they've already stretched your imagination. They really want to make it unbelievable. That person's hanging by a fingernail. And finally somebody comes along to, to save them. And it's kind of dramatic. And if they play the right music and you're thinking, oh man, in real life, nobody hangs like that without falling. <laughs> but, uh, that's just the way it is. Um, we can get in our life where we feel like we are just hanging, like in those movies, by a thread. We talk about, uh, I was saved by the skin of my teeth, we say. Phrases like that that, that have made it into our language. Uh, David, the king, could not get himself out of trouble. He needed God's help. The seminary I went to had a Christian counseling department. If you went to Reformed Theological Seminary and you wanted R.C. Sproul and Richard Pratt and all the, the marquee guys, you would go down to Orlando, and they were there. If you wanted the counseling department... You went to Jackson because that's the counseling department. Dr. Hurley was his name. He's a good guy. I had one class with him because I wasn't in the counseling program, but he taught biblical counseling. He taught us some good things. But he came in one time just to our pastor's practical class. And he said, how many of you are thinking you've been or, or quite likely or you're open to, to your first a position in a church after seminary to be a youth pastor. And like the elite theologicals kind of like snorted as some of us stood up because <laughs> they were better than us. They thought we just ordered pizza all the time and that's what we did. Uh, Dr. Hurley said, I want to tell you, you guys, he said, you youth pastors, uh, right now, you are so important. He said, the youth pastor in my church is doing what I can't do with my own son. He says, I can tell him, but the youth pastor tells him, and the youth pastor tells him the same thing I'm telling him, biblically, takes him there. My son will only listen to that youth pastor. And I thought, here's the head of a department. Here's a guy who wrote a great book called Men and Women in Biblical Perspective. Here's a guy that counsels biblically, that has all these resources, that is so wise. He had a problem he could not solve. It got solved through his church, through the youth pastor at that time. The wisest person needs God's help. The richest person needs God's help. There's times where all the money in the world can't buy you out of a problem. And you think, if I only had more money, I could solve this. Uh, I bet maybe that's a little one, but you're going to find a problem that money would not solve. The king has to say, God you lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Classically, the way we try uh, to solve our problem and, and can't is just, is just even trying to be right with God through good works. I'm going to turn over a new leaf and God's going to like me better. And we, we want to skip the cross and bypass the cross, which is the only way you can be right with God is through Jesus Christ being your substitute on the cross. But we try and skip over that. We try and think we've got enough resources and we can just be good and we can take some self-help stuff and we can, can change our, our way of thinking and we can delete the old tweets and nobody will ever find them and we can do all of that stuff and we think that we're going to be good. We are helpless. Hopeless sinners 
helpless saints, as somebody put it. If the king, with all his resources, can encounter trouble that he can't deliver himself from and must call on God, then don't hesitate yourself to call on God and to say, I cannot solve this one. I'm going to stop wasting that energy. I'm going to take that energy of of scrambling around and I'm going to turn that energy into prayer to God and I'm going to cry out to God. That's the best use of my resource and my time right now and my voice is to call on God. What's good for the king, good for the rest of us peons. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. Third thing, even the king needs to go to church. It's there. Verses 4 and 5. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Now this uh, dwell in your tent, that's pretty easy. David went on to gather all the resources and his son Solomon uh, built the the, the temple. Prior to that was a tabernacle. That was God's tent. And God's tent, going to your tent, uh, was always a reference in the Old Testament to that tabernacle. Dwelling underneath your wings, I would read it and my first thought would be, you know, like wings of an eagle, I would think of those things, or Jesus saying, I want to cover you like a, a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and I would think of that. Uh, that may be what's, what's aimed at here. But the other main way of interpreting under your wings, and it's happened in various places in the Psalms, is those cherubim wings that were sitting on the mercy seat of God in the tabernacle and the priest offering the sacrifice. I tend to think that's what he's talking about here because the rest of it's talking about the assembly and going and praising God with one another. For you, God, have heard my vows. You've given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Church is for everyone, no matter their station in life. We don't think church is only for kings and the elite. We also don't think that anybody is spiritually arrived just because they write some psalms or because they're the king of, of God's people that they don't need to go to church. He's outside. This happened before when he was on the run. David was, before he was, uh, became king, when, when Saul was chasing him around and he had to get people in his camp, all these religious things, and he had the substitute for God's place because he couldn't get back there without getting killed. And he lamented then that he could not go to church. Church is for kings. Church is for paupers. In James, you have a reference when the the church is being formed in that New Testament. And the writer of James says, don't say to this person, you sit here in a good place and you sit here in a poor place. Uh, You sit here at my feet. He said, church, and we understand church then being for all people. And when... James is talking about how we treat all people, but it also informs us that all people from all walks of life were there. Of course they are welcome. All are welcome in church. All are welcome. Murderers, are they welcome in church? Murderers? Of course they are welcome. 
but not to celebrate their murderous ways or to go on murdering or to be told that murdering is not really a sin. They are welcome as murderers to come in and hear that their sin can be confronted and confessed and forgiven and they can lay that sin of murder on Jesus. Yes, all the murderers are welcome. All are welcome in church. Church is a place for kings to come together. Here's David worshiping God with the subjects that he's, that he's ruler over. And together, he's praising God and they're praising God. Remember when they brought the ark back and he's dancing in his linen cloth before the Lord and leading the people in the procession. Psalms is full of that. Church is for everybody to come and together do what they're supposed to be doing in church. And when God is praised properly, when he's uh, exalted as the Savior, when he's explained, when he's marveled at and wondered at, when people are doing the things that they do in church uh, all together, all varieties of people, then that's church at its finest and that's the picture of heaven. All people coming together been listening to the, like every January, Paula maybe goes, oh no, I got to hear about the Australian Open, I got to hear about tennis, I got to hear about who this person is and what this person is doing. I love the Australian Open on the radio, the radio, I don't watch it on TV, could watch it on TV this year, uh, have a channel that would, would carry it this for right now, I won't have it next year, but the radio, and on this radio broadcast booth, oh, they are, they are from Canada, they are from the United States, they are from Australia, of course, they are from England. And there's men and there's women and there's young people and there's old, young, young broadcasters. There's people that have played tennis in their life and maybe had a famous victory. There's people that haven't. But they all come together and they have these little shifts and you, you hear them. And it's more like a community working together to put out a good product with all of their various differences. I wrote, you know, they, in between, in between, uh, games and, and, and uh, sets, they'll say, who, who are you hearing from? And so people, us listeners, we're all part of that family. And somebody will write in what they're doing and what the temperature is in Indonesia and all that. And so I write in, you know, I, I, a couple years. I, Kate Kearns, when she's the reader, um, she'll give some respect. So I wrote this year, and I said, uh, this is, uh, you, know, you have to give your name. And so I write Reverend David Hutchinson to see what they'll do with it. So they read the Reverend part. And so it was the men's doubles, and the Australian, uh, it was an Australian broadcaster who used to play doubles. And so they said, oh, who are we hearing from, Kate? And she goes, we heard from the Reverend David Hutchinson. He goes, oh, nice. And I thought, that's good, oh, nice. And, uh, and uh, I let them know I'm preparing a sermon, or I'm doing this or that, just to throw something God out there, just to hear how they react even. They come together. They do things that are, are good as a team. That is like a church where God calls everybody to worship him together. Why don't we have a children's church where high schoolers all go out to their thing while old-timers sit and do their thing? Why do we like it when kids are here? I was telling somebody it was a, it was a, a quiet week. I think it was talking to James. I said, it's a pretty low crowd last week. And I said, and Noel was gone. And it was like, 
five people were gone because <laughs> I, I missed. There just seems to be an activity and an energy, and I miss that little guy so much. Uh, why do we like having our people here together to worship? Because that's how God wants it. You read Joel 2. He said, get everybody together, even the mother with her baby. Come together and worship and, and, and see this. Uh, it's all of God's people coming in on a worship service and worshiping God together. Oh, we're a bunch of sinners. Mine may be worse than yours. Your may be worse than mine that week. Uh, probably the biggest sinner and the one who's, probably the biggest sinner is whoever's the oldest because they've just lived longer and they just sin all the time anyway. But, but uh, you know, we're, we're all that way. But we're saved by God. We're trusting God with all of who we are. We come to worship God together. If it's good for the king, and you see David, he's crying to God. He's got something he can't do. He needs God to lead him to himself. Uh, I almost forgot that part. There's a good, there's a good verse for Calvinism there, Reformed theology. Uh, he didn't say, I'm going to find that rock, and when I get to that rock, then you reach me. No, you even, God, have to come and lead me to the rock. It is higher than I. And then the point we're on now, let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge in the shelter of your wings. You, God, have heard my vows and you've given me the heritage of those who fear your name. If David needed, and we could, the if means since. Since David needed and longed to go to worship the Lord, and look, the focus is on the Lord, not on razzle-dazzle or the people who were there. It's to worship the Lord with God's people. Since he needed to do that, don't you think that what's good for God's king is good for you? It's good for the goose, it's good for the gander. God's king needs to be in worship, so do we peons. Consistent church going leads to consistent spiritual growing. Do you remember each and every meal you've ever eaten all your life? If you've kept a little log and written it down, then, uh, <laughs> then you've got problems. <laughs> but most of us don't. We, just, we, we, we remember some of the standout meals. I was talking to my mom, and I kind of felt bad. I said, Mom, I don't... We were talking about this because it's hard for them uh, with with their COVID uh, uh, dispositions, their, their cries, we wish we could go to church. We can't. Uh, it's just right now, uh, dad, dad's at high risk. But I said, well, mom, it's like, you know, I don't remember every meal I've ever eaten. I said, oh, but I do remember what you made, <laughs> this meal, this meal, this. I, I do remember that she would make certain meals that I would like if it was that day. I remember once or twice where I've gone out with Paula for something. I remember that meal on that day. I remember that duck up there in, uh, up in uh, wherever it was up, up north, sitting there in that restaurant and, and, and eating that and, and talking. It was just wonderful. I remember that specific meal. I remember a meal that Grandma made us eat before our first football practice. <laughs> How grandmas are. Mashed potatoes, gravy, chicken. Parents were gone. Grandma was taking care of us. And so it was me and Chris's first football practice. And she loaded us up. And I, I remember it tasted good because Grandma made it, but it didn't taste so good crawling across the parking lot after all those wind sprints uh, all the way to the locker room. Uh, that meal was not a good meal, but I remember that meal specifically. Going to church is like that. 
You don't remember every single sermon that was preached. You might remember a certain series that God used to hit you at a time. But if you've gone to church all your life and it's been a biblical church, you've just been strengthened with nutrients. You've had that meal, that meal, that meal, that meal. And you're spiritually somewhere where you need to be if you've sung songs about Jesus that were true and good and you've taken it to heart and the Holy Spirit applies it. We don't have to remember every meal to know we've eaten a lot of meals in our lifetime. And going to churches that way, God strengthens you. That king, uh, he could write psalms about God. Well, God, I'm going to skip church. I'm just going to write songs that they'll sing in church. Is that good enough? Well, David's heart for God was, God, I want to be in your tabernacle, and I can't be. I long to be worshiping you. I want to be under the shadow of those wings. I want to have that blood applied, and I want, to, I want what happens in worship. I don't remember a whole lot of sermons. I do remember one pastor who consistently said for a long time, and looking back now as a pastor, I'm like, I wonder what was going on behind the scenes that I didn't know about. But he always talked about giving grace to each other. Give grace, he would say. Give grace, give grace, give grace. And he would apply it to the grace you've been given and give grace, give grace, give grace. I don't remember the specific sermon, but I remember that was the, the meals he was dishing out at that time in my life. It's good for the king to go to church and want to go to church. Well, it's a good thing for you and me, us peons. We need to be in church ourselves. Fourth, even the king feels the weight of his own leadership responsibility, verses 6 and 7. Now he's talking about himself. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. He's seeing himself in the role that God has placed him. He's seeing himself as the king over God's people. He had a role. He had a responsibility. Uh, There was one king, and there was a usurper trying to take that away, if if that's the events of this time. Uh, But there was one king. Heavy is the head that wears the crown. Shakespeare from Henry IV. He needs outside help. He needs God's help for the job that he's been given. You are the parent for your kids. You are the grandparent for your grandkids. You are the uh, officer in whatever church. You are the person in your office where you work that's a Christian. You've got a responsibility that God's given you in your home. And the king said, I need outside help. Not just in time of trouble. See, we're forgetting all about the trouble. Now, that was the first stanza. That was the first three. He's asking for long-term, not just in this time of trouble. He's asking for himself as the appointed king. You are appointed to the role you have in life. No one can do that role but you because God put you there. When God uh, wants to take you to heaven, he'll take you to heaven, and then he will let somebody else fill that role and do those things. That's all up to God. But right now, while you breathe, you're responsible. And if the king can call out for God's help in that role that he's got, then surely we can call out and recognize our role and ask God's help too. 
Lastly, even the king responds with gratitude and praise to the God who is higher than him. So I will, verse 8, so will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. I'll praise your name. I'll do my job. I'll praise your name. I'll do my job. I'll praise your name. I'll do my job. And then as I'm doing my job, I'll praise your name. And I can do two things at once. I can be your king over your people, and I can praise you for who you are, how you are the one who gives strength and sustains. It's good for the king. It's good for us. Okay, so practical applications. I've made them throughout the sermon. I'm not going to try not to re-preach the sermon, (laughs) at least not this morning. I'm not going to do that. Uh, But there's a quick summary. No one gets a life that's trouble-free. Each one of us runs into some kind of trouble from which there's no way out except for divine intervention. All of us need to worship God in his church. None of us should approach our own leadership responsibility without leaning on God's strength. And everyone, when we see God's hand in our life, we cannot help but worship. If you're not worshiping, when I don't worship, when I go through periods of not worshiping, it's simply because I'm not seeing what God has done and I'm not, I'm not remembering what God's done in my life. But last little part, then it's got to be, be said. Some would call it the Christological connection. Some would call it the gospel. Um, these verses 6 and 7, while they had a point that was directly applicable to David's life then, was also God writing into his scripture what he was going to do with Jesus. This is pointing ahead to Christ. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. And this is language that's throughout scripture about uh, Jesus, who was called what? The son of David. As one of his major names. As the one, you go back to that psalm you've heard about. The Lord said to my Lord, sit on the throne. And you see this, while it was applicable to David in his time, was pointing forward to the one who was going to be the Messiah, our Messiah forever. Some people have, you know, because people think they're smart and they're biblical scholars and they've got to come up with something new or profound. Some people have looked at this and they've said, Well, that last part of the psalm was written in the exile. And and David wrote the first part, but the last part they put on there because uh, they'd been losing hope and they had to talk about a coming Messiah. Well, not true. Not true. Uh, It's consistent with the text. It was all written by David. But listen to this, and then we're going to look at Christ for a moment, and then we're going to close. In praying for himself as king, David is praying equally for his kingdom, whose welfare is bound up with his own. Stanza 1 was a deeply personal prayer, yet with stanza 2, the psalm is seen to have a national vision. We can imagine David's successors also using the prayer, and they too will be bringing the needs of their kingdom to God. At the same time, 
the form of it is such that the people in their turn can use it to pray for their king and thus indirectly for themselves. Okay, listen. Nor do the fall of the monarchy in the exile put an end to this psalm's usefulness. The phrase, the ends of the earth in stanza one, turns out to have a new and unforeseen dimension when the nation of Israel is scattered worldwide. A still greater breadth of meaning is given to stanza two's words, enthroned in God's presence forever. So here's what I was saying. The collapse of the Davidic kingdom in 587 B.C. refocused the thoughts of God's people onto a new kind of king, the coming Messiah. Now, the significance of the psalm is not being perverted, but fulfilled when we Christians see Christ in it. We're not messing up the psalm. We're not stretching. When we see Christ in this psalm, we're actually doing what God wanted us to do. Rightly do Christians use such a prayer for their king, capital K, their king's glory and his people's blessing. You see Christ in this. The Messiah is here. Uh, He's our king. We worship our king. So for us, looking at our congregation, and boy, it's been... Helter Skelter is a bad... Herky jerky, it's been, it's been hit and miss. You know, COVID comes, better shut it down because the pastor's the one with the COVID. He's been in everybody's house. He's seen more people that week probably than he's... You know, that's, that was the week I saw everybody. Well, we, we better not worship. We better be wise. Here comes some weather. Some people can't come. I specifically told Gordon yesterday on the phone, if that doesn't get plowed, Gordon, I don't want to see you here. You be safe. There are times when you can't come. We're, we're starting, we're stopping. We're small. We're, a, we're a, a weak little church from human standards. We've got a great big mission. Man, God using us in spite of ourselves to, to be the ones who tell the, 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 the fallen world that there's a Jesus Christ and there's salvation, uh, we need uh, to go to the rock that is higher than ourselves. And that rock is Christ. And that's got to be the way we look at things. Uh, there is no discouragement. The king starts out in trouble, but I see joy and, 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 and positives throughout this psalm of crying out. I see those for Christ the shepherd. Good. What's around the corner? What's God got for us? Who is God? Well, God's the one who saved us. God's the one who put us together. God's the one who miraculously did all of these things that I've shared in the past. And God's at work. God, take us to the rock that is higher than you. Amen. Let's close. Father, thank you for what we can learn about a man in trouble and what you led him to do and how you helped him, David. We thank you for the way it applies to us. We thank you that we can even look in this song that he wrote and see Jesus right there, obvious. We pray that Jesus would be so obvious to us uh, as we look at our world in 2022. 
In Jesus' name, amen. When he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. 